1: to deny the strange energies that permeate on the periphery of our maintained and manicured towns, cities, roads, highways, and neighborhoods. We've heard since humanity's infancy stories of beasts and monsters who lurk in places too wild to be tamed by man. Yet somewhere in the area of the last 200 years, man tamed more land than possibly ever before in recorded history. The verifiable abundance of the Americas was short work for the colonial pioneers. The wild energy that made itself manifest, the pre-Columbian variety of biomes, vast forests, prairies, swamps and wetlands, mountains, caverns and coastlines teeming with life. This wild energy now resides where man is sparse, in most cases. Today, take a magnifying lens to an area that seems to have absorbed, assimilated and amplified this ancient arcane permeation of natural forces, a place where lawmen, lay folk, outlaws, and elites join in and play their tune with the Orchestra of the Elemental Spirits. Our guide along this journey through the Penny Royal, Nathan Isaac, here to discuss the Fortean synchronicities that have pulled him into a geomagnetic portal of hyperstition and high strangeness in hyperdimensional Somerset, Kentucky, the Greater Pennyroyal Plateau. I'm Mystic Mark, thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Nathan Isaac.
0: There's a, a deeply personal connection between the observer and this event and the observer something observing the observer observing the event it creates this this crazy feedback loop that's the basis of synchronicity this synchronistic reality this hyperstitional reality that emerges out of that I think there's something in this phenomena in the way that it appears to people in the way that it presents itself in the way that it manifests that that involves these weird feedback loops and this weird story telling a story and becoming part of the story and it's like he became a part you know he's this prankster this discordian who's fucking with everybody about secret societies and the illuminati and then it turns out he's involved in one of these conspiracies by no fault of his own it's as if the universe fucking pranked him right but and he became a part of the story that he was telling and i don't know i think there's an element of that in this strangeness that 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 Includes the storyteller, you as the storyteller, you know, in your own story.
1: Welcome. Thank you so much for being here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I was listening to your show last year, very impressed. Around that time, I was exploring some of the magical aspects that you can tap into. When you start to understand the landscape, whether it's a landscape you were born in, a place you moved to, and what really became exciting for my girlfriend Tara and I was looking into the history of these places that we were going around to visit so often, and man, you have just taken... A big microscope, a big magnifying glass to this area that is so interesting. So before we get to Somerset, Kentucky and the first season of Pennyroll, tell us about Nathan Isaac. Tell us about when this started for you and when you got interested in these subjects.
0: Oh, man, I guess probably, you know, I've always been fascinated by it. 40 and phenomena. Right. And loved all the, you know, the book, the damned Charles Fort. And yeah, you know, I I grew up in Appalachia in Eastern Kentucky, like very much in the apocalypticism of, of free will Baptists, you know, and uh, a lot of talk about the end of the world all the time, but also a lot of uh, mountain magic, like granny magic and those sort of sort of things, which, you know, which we've talked about on the show and, this second season, uh, Matthew Bird, who's a friend of ours in Tennessee and a pagan, he he talks about the fact that a lot of these uh, these old Christian church women were, were perf- you know performing magic for all intents and purposes, but since it was in the church, it wasn't seen as. It's right. magic. Or the they're a devil, different label. Right. Right. But if you didn't go to church, it was the devil, you know? So, right. so I, you know, I grew up in that. A lot of talk of spook lights and uh, a lot of strange things. And so, obviously, was always fascinated by that. But, you know, once I was in college, you know, studied philosophy, studied religion, you know, and really started digging into Deleuze and Guattari and A Thousand Plateaus and like the, you know, critical theory stuff. And Manuel De Landas. Uh, thousand years of nonlinear history. And so I think a lot of my interests in the high strangeness and the Fordian and the weirdness sort of collided with philosophy and trying to understand these things, you know, and, and, and I love fucking stories. I love telling stories. And so a lot of this is about, you know, understanding folklore understanding stories and how they emerge from just like what you were talking about, this, the landscape and the people and how, you know, the, the relationship of those things. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So becoming interested in these things from a young age in that atmosphere, I have to ask you: You're on this show. Did your family think you were crazy for pursuing these interests? Was this something that you kept, you
0: know, between you know close friends, or how did that pan out? My family definitely, absolutely thought I was fucking crazy, right? But, but I've got to say, uh, testament to my parents because, and and they are very religious, you know, you know, Free Will Baptist I guess, is is the denomination. But my my parents were very supportive. Of me going out there and experiencing the world. And then, you know, I think they felt that I would come back to the, you know, like you go out there and you'll see these things and then you'll, you'll, you'll come back. You want to go to church, right? Let let him, let him uh, run
1: his energy out and he'll come crawling back to us kind uh, of thing.
0: Right. Okay. You know, and, and now my mom is sort of like, "Ah, oh, I, th- I was too. I was too open about these things. I let you. I let you explore too much stuff." You know? oh, Now look at you. Yeah. You know, doing this podcast.
1: You're <laughs> soaring now. I mean, and you know, you mentioned the storytelling, and I do like to get those, you know, stories on who you are and how you got to this point. But your podcast, I mean, it's. So well done from the production to the storytelling to the research, I mean, and you also include great researchers like someone we've had on the show recently, Corey Daniels, someone who is a big part of at least that first episode. Back to the first season, you had guys like Steven Snyder on and a couple of other folks that I think are so unique. You you had this really interesting guy who seems like he's been experiencing these things for many years. Had you experienced anything strange yourself before you got into becoming, you know, an audio documentarian of this uh, caliber? Thank you, by the way.
0: No Uh, problem. uh, uh, You deserve uh, it. I really appreciate it, man. But yeah, you know, I guess i would had some weird experiences in high school and some strange, (sighs) I I don't know. I don't talk about it on the the podcast, you know, very much, but just this idea that, that, you know, small shadow creatures and uh, like a lot of visitation things, you know what I mean? But I don't know, you know, it was always sort of a a dreamlike experience and, you know, like elves or you know what I'm saying that the little hooded figures mm. with the uh, shoes with that are that are curled you know
1: and well, uh, and we've heard on the podcast actually stories of of folks not your podcast maybe I think you might have touched on this but at least on my podcast I know we've talked about little people in Appalachia so that's not a, you know outside of the realm of what we've heard so far but it, there's even the, goblins involved
0: in this story in some sense right yeah, yeah, yeah. And definitely this idea of the Duende, you know, the, mm. the little people that Native Americans saw in this region, you know. But yeah, you know, all of this stuff, the, the idea of the goblins in Hopkinsville, which are, you know, it's the first time that they talk about, you know, it's where the term little green men emerged, right? And, but really they looked more like what we would describe an elf as, right? You know what I'm saying? They, they didn't have the characteristics of a gray alien. And they had pointed ears and they're also
1: associated with like these caves that I'm sure we'll get into more about, but it's funny. The word goblin actually is uh, like a similar word or maybe even comes uh, from or cobalt. The word cobalt comes from the term goblin because these things were seen in mines when they're looking around for these minerals.
0: Yeah. There, there's a famous story in uh, Pondville, Kentucky of a group of miners that are trapped in a mine there and I think this is a fairly famous story you know one of the more weird ones but a wall of light a doorway of light opens up and a guy in what they described as a lumberjack shirt you know this this checkered shirt steps out and tells them not to worry that everything's going to be okay and that they're going to be saved, and then exits back through the doorway, right? And they all reported this, and so it's this weird, you know, for them it was like a Tommyknocker, you know, that in the cave, and and that's what the story is is traditionally associated with. But it's just like this this reoccurring idea that just takes all these different forms, you know that that, that especially Hopkinsville, you know, and the weird thing too about Hopkinsville, and that's like the Western. Tip of the Penny Royal, right? And that's right in the area where Mammoth Cave is, and which obviously is the largest cave system in uh, North America. You know, there's also supposedly a uh, doorway to Agartha in Mammoth Cave, right? Is accepted in the canon of of stories of the Hollow Earth and and breakaway civilization. So you've got the Hopkinsville goblins and, and the emergence of the Little Green Men and then mammoth cave this entrance to agartha and then that's where edgar cayce was born and raised right wow and so it's a weird you know it's a weird concentration of a lot of strange strange ideas you know right. and and that's just one part of the penny royal you know well and that, that
1: adds to the the concept of this magic in the land but if you could help us understand for those who may never have visited Kentucky like myself, I've never had the chance to be there yet, but I just noticed you actually have like somewhat of a map behind you for our video um, viewers, but is the Penny Royal limited to Pulaski County there or does it out, is it, is
0: Pulaski County just a small part of the Penny? Yeah. So Pulaski County is just a small part. It's very central to the Penny Royal and the Penny Royal refers to the Penny Royal Plateau. Okay, And it's, it's named Penny Royal because of an herb that grows here called Penny Ryle. And if anyone's listened to the song Penny Royal Tea by Nirvana, that is in reference to that herb, which was used as an abortion. It's like one of the four herbs that ancient people used to use for abortions, right? And so it's, po- it's actually a poisonous plant. But here everyone calls it Penny Ryle you know, Penny Royal, but it's actually Penny Royal. And so, so it, it really stretches from the mountains in Eastern Kentucky where the foothills are west and, and sort of like the central area of Kentucky all the way back to Mammoth Cave in that area. And so this particular area is well known for, it's, it's, it's what's called a karst landscape and it's, it's, pockmarked with lots of caves, lots of tunnels, lots of openings that have been carved into the to the sandstone by water over, you know, millions of years. So it it, it, but it creates, you know, these huge cavern systems. And so in Pulaski, the 13th largest cave system in North America, the Sloan's Valley Cave System is here. And a lot of people believe connects with portions of the Mammoth Cave that sort of spirals out through central Kentucky. So I, I think that's the thing that emerged in the first season and, and really looking at this and, and much so in the second season too, but this, this idea that, that the landscape plays so much you know, plays such a significant part in the story. It's, it's one of the main characters, right. But it's also sort of a main character in people's lives in general is where they live. You know, a lot of people are like, Oh, I live in the most boring place ever. Right. But they've never taken the time to actually interact with that landscape and the story of that landscape, because they may find parts of their story also are intertwined. And I, you know, that's really what I wanted to do with the first season was to, to cause people to ask those questions and cause them to sort of look at the place that they are and find the magic in that place, you know, because there's a lot of your own story that you don't even real realize is tied into uh, the story of where you are, you know? Yes, yes, and I'm sure the listeners have heard me mention
1: this many times, but that was very much the case for me in the Susquehanna River. Michael Wan, who does a lot of research on the Susquehanna River, I had him on the show a couple times, and now him and I do a podcast together weekly, and, uh, and I'm taking sort of steps to look into the Connecticut River, which is pretty central to where I live. But, yeah, it's amazing to see how institutions use these geographical features to build certain structures and you know i took a little bit i didn't want to i want to really spend more time talking about season one because i haven't listened to all of season two yet naturally it's not finished but i'm almost certain that you guys have uh touched on a lot of this because in the first episode you talk about Route 66 and our buddy Corey Daniels breaks down how the Freemasons are very much involved with that. So, wow. But let's let's go back to this. Penny Royal and what you found maybe on the ancient history of the place, because I find
0: that's equally as important when you're looking at a landscape. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of research into ley lines. And, and, and really, you know, the, the first season sort of feeds where I ended up going in the second season, you know, because the second season, the motif that sort of ties everything together is this occult history of the U.S. transportation system, right? And this idea of roads as paths. And, and, and roads as sort of paths to initiation, you know, and this idea of, of during the first season, you know, while we were investigating everything, were we sort of on some type of path, you know, you know, whether, you know, I don't know if if we say initiation, but I'm just saying like, you know, a a weird. Oh, I know exactly
1: what you mean. When you go on the journey, the journey ends up becoming something entirely different than what you had expected. Yes.
0: Yeah. And so that's sort of, you know, that's the motif of the second season, but yeah, you know, that I guess that's ultimately where I'm going is this idea of, of being on a road, but really it's a road to nowhere. Right. And that's, that's, that's the only way to get to this place is to not know how to get there. Right. It only reveals itself to the person who's gotten rid of the map. But so the, but the, Season. The reason I went into that in the second season is, you know, the first season. This place that we're at, especially um, this Highway Thirty Nine that we talk about, it's where Dan Dutton. He's the the central figure in the story in the fourth episode of the first first season, and he has these crazy interactions in Elkhorn City. Very much his life is tied to pan to the the theme of pan, you know, and Dan's a very famous uh, artist here in Kentucky. And so anyway, the, the, the road that his farm is off of highway 39, and we had uncovered a lot of stories about the frog falls and, you know, these weird, weird falls of things from the sky, you know, yeah, things, things like, like meat, century. right? Meat, yeah, meat frogs. frogs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that was in, oh was it? Olympia, well, Olympia Springs, Kentucky. Right. And, but then we had the showers of, of various things here. Frogs had fallen uh, off of Highway 39. And so Highway 39, when you look deeper into the, the history of this area, it was part of what was called the Great Warrior Way. And so these Buffalo traces existed where Native Americans had followed the herds of Buffalo and it had formed, those were the first roads in America. Right. And so highway 39 was one of those Buffalo traces that became the great warrior way. And so that road, that highway is like, it carries with it the energy of all of these generations of people and animals moving through it. Right. And it's, one of these places in Kentucky that has mounds on it and so there have been all kinds of black dog sightings tons of these alien black cat sightings which are traditionally associated with these ancient earthworks you know especially in England you know England is a is a fucking island and there aren't any native Large black cats, right? But then you've got the beast of Exmoor and all of these cryptids that are cited there that are these alien black cats, right? And they're central to the earth. They, they end up popping up around and we're, these and areas. And we're talking
1: big cats, right? We're not talking a house cat. We're talking no, maybe no. the
0: size of a dog cats. Yeah. Jaguar size, you know, lion size, you know, the, the beast of Exmoor, there's a picture where the thing looks like a, it looks like a lion almost, but, but they're associated the appearance of these things with these standing stones and these ancient earthworks. And so people like John Keel and others have sort of proposed that there is an association, you know, that these areas are portal areas. And so the veil, or the you know the the membrane between worlds is thinner there, and so these things are able to pass back and forth. You know, other theories are that that they could be guardians of some sort. You know, guardians of the gateway. But I know that in this area here in Pulaski County, I've the, the number one thing that I have gotten in interviews are black cat sightings, and there are no there are no melanistic black cats, you know, black panthers. In North America and there haven't been any since 1921 like Mexico and south, right? right? And so All of these people i'm interviewing right all of these old timers They've all seen these big black cats and they're huge And the, the most common report is that the tail of the cat is on one side of the road and its nose is on the other So the the whole length of this black cat is the size of a two-lane highway. And now are most of these cats seen
1: by, like, drive-by sightings, like from, from cars? Is that typically yeah, yeah. where they're seen?
0: That's typically... I'd hate the, to be a hunter
1: finding one in the woods. I
0: mean, jeez. <laughs> no, no. And that's the thing, you don't, you don't hear that, mm-hmm. right? Mainly from vehicles. And Dan Dutton was, was the one that proposed this to me, that a lot of the sightings are in cornfields of a cat moving from a cornfield on the left side of the road to the right side of the road. And there are a lot of Mesoamerican beliefs in a Jaguar cult. Right. And so th- that's associated with corn. Right. Right. Yeah. And and here in Pulaski County in one of the, and there are some very ancient paleo Indian uh, sites, uh, especially because of the Sloan's Valley cave system. And we're talking, you know, Fifteen hundred year old a site where they found objects, and well, some of the objects are these. They're called gorgets, and and they're made from shell, right, from seashells, and they will make these designs. And they found a number of black jaguar designs, which are evidence of a jaguar cult here in Pulaski County at some point in the cave system, right? Wow. <laughs> so, yes. So, but, you know, you know, all of that plays into. These other stories, you know, because it's like those are just foundational elements to the weirdness. Absolutely.
1: You mentioned ley lines before. I've had a guest on this episode 108. Peter Shampoo who talked about the Empire ley line, which goes from the Great Pyramid all the way up through the eastern seaboard, through New York City, through Philadelphia. And it's, it's you know, according to him, for, through his interpretation, like a, a sacrificial ley line, you know, that all this energy has been accrued along. And you've talked about this in Pennyroyal where certain sites where great massacres have taken place or even battles and civil war, you know, can hold this residual energy that is definitely sensed to this day.
0: You know, and that, that is something about you know, the Penny Roll is a large place. I think it's maybe 14, 15 counties in, you know, it's a large portion of of Kentucky and it's a large geographical area. Now, you know, there like I said, Hop- Hopkinsville is a, is a hot spot. You know, there are other hot spots here, but you know, in looking at Pulaski County, you know, which is very central to, and that's what the map of behind me is of uh, Pulaski County, an early road map, you know, which shows a lot of roads that don't even exist anymore, which I think is fascinating. But when you look at Pulaski County, there is this sort of coalescing or an intensification, a concentration of of energy and information and people here specifically right and it's there's something with this area you know in an ancient way in terms of the river right the cumberland river that goes through here and so it it, it is if you're coming from louisville kentucky you know across central kentucky the cumberland river is definitely a point that you have to traverse right because of this plateau and one of the the reasons why this place was really important in the civil war is that it was one of the only areas that the f- from the south to the north that you could transport goods right across this river and so it, it was a majorly strategic point and that's why they fought the battle of mill Mil springs here that we talk about in in the first season which was this massive and very decisive battle In the civil war so that you've got that here right you've got this river that's here that eventually becomes lake cumberland they damn it right and but but there's this history from the civil war until you know we get the railroad from cincinnati down to somerset right and so cincinnati is queen city and somerset which is the you know the county you know the capital city of of pulaski county the county seat you you this, this connects the, the, the railroad, and so Somerset became Little Queen City. And so if you wanted to go anywhere in Kentucky, you had to go through Somerset, right? And that's why we, you know, we talk in the first season about when Aleister Crowley was traveling through Kentucky. You know, he visits Mammoth Cave, Aleister Crowley's aunt, you know, his mother's sister lived in livingston county kentucky right had immigrated from england to there so he no doubt visited her which also livingston county is where supposedly edadorpa's entrance to the underworld is also located if anyone's familiar with the story of edadorpa and it's tied to the freemasons right and uh, william morgan who you know was murdered or went missing because he was going to expose the freemasons it's a story sort of, of his journey into the underworld, you know, the underworld of, of, you know, Gartha and all this stuff anyway, but I don't know. It's just, you you find the, the railroad, that intensification, and then the Kentucky anomaly, right. You know, to find out that that Pulaski County is the center of the largest spike of geomagnetic energy in North America. Right. And, and there's another anomaly in Sedona and another one in Southern Alaska, but this one is the most powerful. And that's, it's it's so strange. It's like with all of these weird things happening here, Pulaski County actually is the center of this thing, you know, and it's so strong that these NASA uh, maps, you know, that we found show that the surface gravity is slightly different here than anywhere else in in North America because of the intensity of this geomagnetic anomaly. And they don't know what's causing it. They have no idea, but it's something underneath Poliski County. And, and it's like, how is that affecting the people that live here? Right. And and ultimately, you know, with all the UFO sightings, these sightings of all these weird creatures, you know, that, that we found here and then the weird people that have been drawn here. Right. It's like, is it something more than just a geophysical, you know, anomaly, right? Is it an anomaly on multiple levels and affecting people in different ways? Because, you know, even finding the Guterma stuff, you know, we just kept finding all of these people, you know, Alexander Gaterma, Mr. X, that all of these strange people were drawn to this place. And those people were tied into massive moments in history. You know, John Sherman Cooper, who was on the Warren Commission, who was, you know, such close friends with Jackie O and Kennedy, you know, is from Somerset. You know, there are two bronze statues in Somerset. One is John Sherman Cooper and the other is fucking Pan. Right. It's weird. Now, I definitely want to touch on
1: Pan, but. Alistair Crowley when he visited Somerset there might have been some folks in Somerset that were practicing some things that he would have been familiar with allegedly what what was the you know secret society activity at the time I heard word of something like a satanic cult I don't know that might be an extreme take but what 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 is there that Alistair Crowley would have been you know participating in in Somerset, other than the sightseeing, I mean, I don't know how,
0: how much he, in terms of staying here, what he, what may have happened. He definitely, like I said, was in Mammoth Cave at that time. This was like 1915 to 1919. I do have the railroad records, like of how much the tickets cost and how he would have traveled through Kentucky at the time. Now, you know, obviously, you've got the OTO, which which you know he sort of founded, and later. Right. You know, that's in 1919. In the 1970s, a very well-known group of OTO members that were followers of Kenneth Grant's Typhonian order, a group called the Bait Cabal, came down from – they formed in Cincinnati, but some of them were part of a chapter in New York City. And they were led by a woman named Maggie Ingalls, and she went by the name of Nema. Nima. And so this group formed a journal called the Cincinnati Journal of Ceremonial Magic. And they truly believed that there were these old ones that had been banished from our reality and that there was something called the Cincinnati Vortex that was over Kentucky. It sounds very much like the Kentucky Anomaly, right? But that Native American shamans a long time ago had helped to open this portal and it had never been closed, was one of the stories. It's also centered over the Daniel Boone National Forest, which is where a lot of Nema's rituals were. And so this group believed in time magic, vortex magic. I was able to get the entire collection of the journal. right? But they were coming to Somerset, to the area exactly where this mine was, this Mount Victory Mine. And they were performing these rituals to prevent these beings from coming back into our reality, right? And performing time magic and vortex magic from the stories and from what we've uncovered. Now, concurrent with this, right? This is right at the time that this Mr. X, this Alexander Guterma, who may have been an ex-Nazi intelligence agent, who is named as a co-conspirator in the JFK assassination, was involved in all of these like major moments in history ends up in Somerset, Kentucky, buying this mine. And he buys the mine from an infamous attorney named Lester Burns Jr., locally infamous, and his business partner, who was fucking Spiro Agnew, and that was Nixon's vice president. And they had raised money to buy the mine on Nixon's reelection campaign in the Middle East, right? And so after, after all the Nixon stuff went down, there was a lot of allegations against Spear Wagner. And so he, this mine caught him up in this, but you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, you find out that this weird shadowy figure bought this mine from the vice president of the United States. I've interviewed a woman who tells me not, she doesn't even know any of that stuff. I haven't known that, right? But she's telling me that there was a cult. And when we're like, where's the cult at? She's like, it was at the Mount Victory Mine. You know, and she starts telling us that all these things happen there, right? So then we find out about the Bakerball. They're not the cult, right? I'm just saying they're a whole other separate magical group who are performing magic near this mine where there are allegations of another group. And then we found multiple groups that were being drawn to this area, right? The Guadonic Order, which was a, a group of Welsh magicians that moved their international headquarters to fucking somerset kentucky in 2004 okay and so it's like why are all of the there's this concentration of these magicians and then at the same time the bakeball are coming down here alexander guterma owns this mine mr x that's what the new york times referred to him as at the same time that's all happening there's a mental health facility an experimental mental health facility called oakwood that opens here in Somerset in 1973 and within six months of the place being open, there are these allegations, this letter gets written to like the governor of Kentucky and all these like, you know, big people, state police alleging that there's a witch cult performing magic in the tunnels underneath Oakwood and that they're burning magical symbols into the backs of some of the patients. Right. And, and then I'm interviewing people about that, you know, that that's happening concurrent to these other things, and find out that there was a cottage of savants. Most of the people in Oakwood were lower functioning uh, patients, but there was a one one of these cottages, and it was like an experimental. The therapies they used they were experimental, and so one of the cottages was a group of high functioning savants, and the caretakers there, you know, they they tell you know Dan Dutton ends up having this encounter there, but you know, come to find out that these caretakers believed those nine patients, those savants were inhabited by some alien intelligences that had a message to save humanity. Right. And like researching all this shit and finding the fucking shit stack of all of those stories. Right. And these are all separate people, separate things. It's like, what you you, you, there's no way to deny that something fucking strange is is happening here right and it's i don't know man it's just it was like the magic of it was was sort of discovering like being in the position to see all of those things right because each of those people didn't know about the other people right they had their story you know but we were able to see all of these stories and how they were some strange constellation or like a strange circuit that was formed by this. And I don't know. I mean, that's Penny Royal was, was trying to tell that story in the first season and, and try, trying to understand it in the second season.
1: Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, I am so, Sort of in awe of how much you did uncover because it is like an onion that really doesn't end. You keep peeling back the layers and you just keep finding more layers expecting to hit a core eventually. And you don't, but, you know, kind of similar to our Earth seems sort of hollow. And when you bring up this Mr. X kind of brings to mind some research that I've looked into put together by a man named Walter Bosley who talks about these, you know, breakaway civilizations and how they were comprised of a lot of Germans. And then, you know, post-war, a lot of those Germans came over here and disappeared. And it seems like they might have fit in nicely with these breakaway civilizations, which may have utilized places like underground caverns. And wow. Yeah. And, you
0: know, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, speaking of Bosley, you know, and I, I know you've had Rick Spence on here too, as a guest and, you know, really their book, the empire of the wheel, you know, is has had such a um, major impact on, on
1: the story. You you brought up a book that I'm very familiar with. I actually recently read it this year, empire of the wheel. And, I'm not surprised to hear that it's a big inspiration. You know, they touch on how important geography and ley lines and even timing play into some of these esoteric rituals. Albeit the one they touch on there is uh, alleged. You know, they have no real solid evidence other than sort of the you know fabric and how it weaves together. But I think that's exactly what we need to do: is take all of these misaligned pieces and figure out first which puzzle they fit into and then work on those puzzles and that's exactly what you're doing but yeah i have talked to richard spence and crowley is someone i've researched i yeah i'm just curious you know maybe i misremembered but there was there like a group practicing sort of similar rituals in that time period when Crowley would have been there in Kentucky, or was
0: it later on with just this group you just told us about? Definitely. We talked about that group later on. We did, we did come across a group that was a group of warring magicians in Cincinnati okay, at the okay. at the time that Crowley was here, and this also lines up with James Shelby downard. you know, if if people are familiar with the the oh, wow. arch conspiracy theorist who is a a big part of this story, you know, a lot of people don't realize that James Shelby Downard grew up in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, you know, oh, wow. and so you know it's it's a for you know, I think that Downard had a major influence on the conspiracy community, especially because of Adam Parfury, you know, the apocalypse culture books, you know, obviously his connection to Hoffman and Grimstead and the publication of King Kill 33, right? Yeah, you know, Secret Society's psychological warfare. Yeah. And so so it was weird for me knowing about Downard, but then sort of finding Downard and pieces of Downard in this story, you know wow. that he went to college thirty minutes north of Somerset, right? With he was in school with a lot of the patriarchs that built this town, right? What? And so at the time that his, you know, his father, and see this ties into the whole roads thing again, you know this this idea that his father got rich by creating this, you know, a, a type of asphalt. And so he ended up paving a lot of the roads in, in the heart of America. And so when he retired from that, made all, he made his fortune, they moved to Cincinnati and it, the time that they lived in Fort Tom, which Fort Thomas is like right across the river from Cincinnati. So when I'm, when I'm talking about that part of Kentucky, you can, you can cross into Cincinnati in about five minutes. Right. And so a lot of people in that part, you know, lived in Cincinnati or lived in Kentucky and tra- travel back and forth. But so in Cincinnati at that time is when there was a group of it was the Brotherhood of Luxor and they were at war with a group of spiritualists, a spiritualist church there. Right. Which, again, ties sort of into the whole Empire of the Will story and this idea of the spiritualist church potentially being involved in the murders that occurred in San Bernardino in 1915 or 1914. But this was, you know, Crowley is, is in the area, you know, when those murders happen. Right. And so looking at, you know, the way that, that those murders happen, they didn't have, they didn't happen at the timing of them was important. Right. And it didn't have to happen like boom, 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 boom. Right. There were some of the murders happened months after each other weeks. We started looking at Pulaski County and its history. And there's this long, violent history here. And again, I wonder if it's not an effect of the Kentucky anomaly that it is affecting. You know, just subjecting people to an intense, the most intense geomagnetic radiation. You know, for their entire lives, is that producing higher levels of psychosis? You know, higher levels of violence because. When you look at Somerset, there are all of these crazy fucking murders, just just tons of them. And all the way back, we're talking 1915, 1905, 1898. Um, they're, the most famous murder of the 1800s, of the entire century, was a murder, the beheading of Pearl Bryan in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, where Downer grew up, right? I think this was 1896. And she was headed by two dental students, and she was in a relationship with one. But I'm sure everybody's, or a lot of people will be familiar with the story of Bobby Mackey's in Kentucky. It's this like haunted roadhouse. And oh, no, please where, tell us.
1: Huh? Can you tell us? I, I've never heard of yeah, this.
0: Yeah. Oh, so, so, so Bobby Mackey is this sort of uh, famous country singer and he bought this old slaughterhouse and turned it into a bar and it's up in, I think Wilder, Kentucky, which is near Fort Thomas. Right. And the story goes that these two dental students were Satanists, right. And they had murdered Pearl Bryan and, beheaded her and threw her head down in the well in the basement of this slaughterhouse where they drained the blood of all these pigs and stuff. And that they had done a, a satanic ritual, right? Or some, some crazy thing like that. All right. But, <laughs> but it's been, that place is a huge, like people travel from all over the world to go ghost hunting in Bobby Mackey's. Right. But when you really look in the, into the story of Pearl Bryan, you find out that those guys were probably not Satanists and they were convicted because private investigator from from Somerset, Kentucky found the witness to convict those guys. And then later it turned out that that Pearl Bryan was probably murdered by a woman from Somerset, Kentucky in a group that was active here. And this private investigator had framed those boys to cover that up. Right? Wow. Isn't it that- <laughs> So that was like, you know, another strange way that this all sort of, you know, connected to these other. And at the same time that this was happening in northern Kentucky that Pearl Bright happened, there were a series of beheadings in like Indiana, Illinois, and a few different places. And though we haven't gone down that that road yet, there's just this idea that. There was a, a series of ritual beheadings in America wow. at the turn of the century. You yeah. know, it ties it to Downer's story of going to um, New Mexico. Yeah, and, uh, with the bridge there, there. Yeah, yeah, and th- there's that guy. It's in Taos, uh, New Mexico. Oh, what's the guy's name? Manby. Arthur Rochefort Manby. Mm. and th- this guy had his own uh, secret service. His own, you know, group of spies, and was supposedly a Freemason and Downer's brother-in-law in Carnivals of Life and Death takes him down there to do magical battle with this guy, and then when you look this guy up, he's a real person, and uh, he owned a gold mine called the Mystic Mine, and all of these people associated with it ended up beheaded. And then finally on, I think it was July the 7th or there's a, there's a lot of ties into the 4th of July and July the 7th. He ends up, they find his body and he's been beheaded. And it's just, this crazy. You know, I'm like, how does this all tie into Somerset? You know? Yeah. It kind of rings of like what you
1: hear of these guys who go into ancient pyramid tombs and they get cursed or even, you know, like the, of some of something like of the land, like the elemental spirit of the land sort of poking at these people's subconscious to draw them in further and further. And it seems to attract people like Mambi who have the resources to fully <laughs> you partake in the
0: chaos. Yeah, like those, those are like elemental battles mm. almost, you know, for well, engagements. And you
1: you, have to wonder if maybe like these ancient spirits of like the shamans who opened up those portals, what if they're, you know, in some way affecting us, you know, they're just taking form. You know, the people who took on the role as shaman in those days are now just coming and doing these things without the system in place to teach them how to fully utilize these tools, we'll call them, so it manifests itself in these crazy chaotic ways. That's it's, it's yeah. just speculating yeah. here. Something I like. No, to I do. mean, <laughs> no.
0: I think that's. I mean, it, it, you know, that's that's a ma- well. Exactly what you said is a major part of this. I think because there seems to be this archetypal cycle that is played out over the generations, right? And and because there's a strange element of this story, like when when I mentioned Oakwood and the tunnels and that these things were happening and these abuses and they called it a witch cult, you know, and that's in the newspaper. You know, the the stories I'm referencing are fucking newspaper articles, you know, and there's tons of them. And it's just like, what the fuck? This shit's well-documented, but no one put it together that this was all happening at the same time, you know? But... There's an older turn of the century story. I think this is like 1910 here. And there was a sanitarium, and this guy was a doctor, right? That traveled all over the US. They referred to him as a healer, right? And he, and he sounds, the description sounds like a, what would more, more so be termed a faker, like an F A K I R, like, you know, kind of guy who it's, it's more of like magic. And being a doctor also, and so he built this sanitarium here at the time that there was the t- tuberculosis breakout, and so the sanitarium existed, and then he had a house off from the sanitarium, and so there were there were tunnels that connected the two together, and they're really tunnels. they really exist, right? And so there were a series of murders in those tunnels beneath that sanitarium, and then you know, 60 years later, it happens again, sort of, in this this plays out again, these dark things happening in the tunnels beneath the sanitarium, you know, within five miles of each other, you know, and, and just the, the series of murders that we uncovered and, you know, the, the assassination of the sheriff here, Sammy Catrin, who was sort of this, like, king-like figure uh, and had shades of this, like, killing of the king fertility ritual right and so it's like all these things are happening in this place and it does seem to feel like there's like an archetype like a spirit of the landscape right that's that's playing out some type of psychodrama that's baked into this landscape this particular landscape
1: wow yeah and you know it really takes a frightening form when this energy manifests in creatures that people actually see i mean I recently had a conversation with ryan burns someone who is arguably studying skinwalker and and yeah i mean bigfoot even comes into play in some stories dogman is a big one particularly in that area but i wonder what are your thoughts are are you more on the side of these creatures are interdimensional. Do you think they actually could be flesh and blood and, and actually exist in the cave somehow? Or you know, where do you tend to stand
0: on it? Because I get the sense that it's interdimensional. I lean toward the interdimensional also. But recently, I think all of our research into cybernetics, especially second-order cybernetics, has made me really think of these things as possibly tulpas. In a weird way, at least that there's a level of sort of, you know, like Guterma, you know, so there's this, we were at a a party and uh, a fundraiser and it was at our studio where we produced the show. And this woman was at the party and I had two photos of Alexander Guterma on my my big mixer board, right? And so she came in there and she, she picks it up, one of the photos. And it's one of the Associated Press photos. And the guy looks like a Bond villain, right? He's got, like, a bowler hat, one black glove on, you know? And, and so she picks up this picture and she's, like, she starts to shake. And she says, I know this man, right? And goes into this whole story about how this man is in her dreams every night, right? And that he's not really a man and they, that he never lived. And she was a little drunk, you know, but I mean, she was being very serious about this. And, and so I told her, I was like, you know, this, this guy really did exist. He lived here. He was a very bad person, you know, arguably, but, but he absolutely was real and, and owned this mine. And then she tells me that she lives near that mine, right? And her husband comes in and he's this dentist here in town, a very well-known guy. And he's like, oh, she's telling you about the guy that she sees in her dreams every night, right? And she swore up and down that the person that was visiting her was Mr. X, this Alexander Gaterma. And so, you know, that, that got me thinking about this idea of, is it possible that through telling this story, Right. And then all of these people thinking about Alexander Gutterman. I mean, cause the guy was, obs- it's just completely obscure. Right. Just absolutely did not exist to history anymore. Right. After he died in this plane crash, which people think he was assassinated. Right. And, uh, but for her to see this guy, it's like, is it possible that after the show came out somehow it retro causally gave the entity of Mister X, some type of being, right? Mm. And then I started thinking about a lot of the things that have been happening here, and a lot of things that people have been encountering, and you start to wonder, you know, to what degree are we creating egregores through folklore, right? And and because it's it's like the you know the whole Penny Royal story started because I heard a story about a fucking cult here that I absolutely didn't believe. You know, I was like, that's fucking ridiculous. There's no, the country bumpkins here are not worshiping some, you know, Cthulhu like creatures. And you know, this is not happening. Right. And ultimately I found out that that story was, because it involves murder and all this stuff. It was a true story, but it was three different stories. that the the people here had blended together into one story. But everyone believes it, right? Everyone believes this story. And and even now, you know, there are people that are in therapy, that have these memories of this, right? They have memories of this cult. They have memories of these things happening. But I know for a fact that, it, that it's actually multiple stories, and I see how they lock into each other, right? And it's like, did the collective folklore produce sort of the tulpas, the egregores of that group, right? That don't really exist, but do exist on a weirdly spiritual level, right? Like this idea of Guterma being here. You know, and, you know, and it, then it did turn out that a magical group was coming here to try to stop Cthulhu-like creatures, right? And it was here. And so it's like <laughs> there's a weird hyperstitional quality to all of this, right, in that the telling of the story Affects the story that you're discovering, okay? And we even, you know, in, in the second season, we talk about Borges and his whole idea of I can't, it's Oukbar. It's this this idea that there was a he plays a prank on. He's this, um, I think a Portuguese writer, but he plays a prank on a friend and he invents a society that never existed and then, like, inserts a page in the 1902 encyclopedia, right, Britannica. And so they're going through it, and the guy finds this, right? And and so the more that the print goes on, the more that they start to find artifacts from Ukbar in the real world, right? And so it's like the belief in this is causing it to actually manifest. And so we were asking... Um, a guest of ours who, who is a researcher into hyperstition in the CCRU, you know, the whole cybernetic control unit, the research unit and uh, Nick land. And a lot of this stuff comes from Nick land in the CCRU at, Oh, what's the Warwick university, right. In the cybernetics department. And so we had posited is, was the Borges story the first hi- instance of hyperstition right? And so the researcher said that they had tracked it back even further. But Borges and that story is about a hyperstition, but it wasn't about a hyperstition until Nick Land invented the concept of a hyperstition in 1993. And then that re- retroactively caused the Borges story to be hyperstitional, right? And so so when you start to look at some of the things we're uncovering, it gets really slippery in terms of timing, right? You know, of Dan Dutton encountering these savants at Oakwood, right? Things happening now, things happening in the eighties, things happening in 1994, things happening in 1915. And so you start to see this overlap, right? But it all involves the telling of the story, right? Because none of these things would be lining up or connecting together without us as the interface for the story to exist, right? And I wonder how much or how many of these encounters with the other or other beings doesn't involve something similar because they're all very personal experiences, right? You know, those encounters often are unverifiable because it's only one witness right or it's only this one thing so there's a, a deeply personal connection between the observer and this event and then sort of the observer something observing the observer observing the event it creates this this crazy feedback loop you know that's where the it's the basis of synchronicity you know and so this synchronistic reality, this hyperstitional reality that emerges out of that. You know, I just, I think there's something in this phenomena and the way that it, you know, appears to people and the way that it presents itself and the way that it manifests that, that involves this, this, these weird feedback loops and this weird story, telling a story and becoming part of the story. You know, the Downard's a big example of that. Carrie Thornley, you know, his whole story of JFK. He writes the book about Oswald, you know, before Oswald even, you know, is involved in that. And then Carrie Thornley ends up having tons of connections to the JFK assassination, you know, and the whole Christmas thing. and, And it's like he became a part, you know, he's this prankster, this discordian who's fucking with everybody about secret societies and the Illuminati. And then it turns out he's, Involved in one of these conspiracies by no fault of his own. It's as if the universe fucking pranked him, right? But, and he became a part of the story that he was telling. And I don't know. I think there's an element of that in this strangeness that, 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 that includes the storyteller. You as the storyteller, you know, in your own story.
1: What you seek, you will find. And oftentimes it's much more than you thought you could chew, but yeah, man. I mean, wow. It and even in this podcast, I find examples of synchronicity in every episode. Just that mention to Carrie Thornley, believe it or not, I was just interviewing uh, Reverend Ivan Stang, the founder of the Church of the Subgenius, who showed us a copy of a book about Carrie Thornley, which him and a friend are releasing very soon. So even just today, there was that odd synchronicity. Because how would you have known? You know, and you just brought that up. So, wow. Look at that, folks. (laughs) Wow, man. So, how, you know, how much of that are you comfortable with? Because I think, you know, I would be a little... Anxious about what could happen next. I mean, has anything happened that has pushed you past like the threshold of what you expected? You're getting into. I mean, I think that's a definite yes. But any any experiences that were, you know, tested your your faith?
0: Maybe we'll say. Yeah, I mean, definitely, it's gotten really weird, uncomfortably weird at times. You know, and it's not like it's it's not like it's on all the time right you know it's it's you know because i have a day job you know i work like 60 hours a week at a you know at a, at a normal job Wow. and you know, I, I, there are lots of other stuff lots of projects and things you know but if if i were to try to like live this every day i would go fucking nuts you know what i'm saying there's just too much weirdness to it i, I think you know i've talked about this with a lot of people that are researchers in the paranormal and in the 14 and i think that i think that having a job, having a day job really, and, and just having a normal life grounds you, right? Cause you can't, you can't swim in these waters all the time or you'll drown. Right. You know what I mean? Like you've got to, you got to get out of the, out of it sometimes. And so, you know, there've been times that it's, you know, I, I love it though. You know, I love all the, I love finding all this stuff. I love, you know, there's a high, there's a rush that you get. You know, that's addictive in researching these things and finding these connections and and having these things reveal themselves. Right. But the weirdest thing, the, the scariest thing has always been in this has been the human element. Right. That we, you know, when we intersected with Hillier and those guys came down here, Greg Newkirk and, and his crew, and they told me the stories that that woman was sending them. I, you know, cause at that point I was like, there's no fucking cult here. Right. And then have these outside people come in and they're like, we've been receiving messages from people down here. There's a fucking cult. You know, and I was like, well, what if I'm wrong? What if there is a cult? Right. And again, you know, I found out that, that there, that there isn't a cult, you know, but it's one of those things where I'm always afraid that we're going to uncover Poke our noses where we, where we shouldn't. You know, and, and in the second season, we talk about finding Chuck Hayes, who is uh, Charles Hayes, but he goes by Chuck Hayes. And he was very prominent in the conspiracy community. I, would, I guess you would describe it as the Usenet, com- com- when Usenet was around, right, in the early 90s, uh, late 80s or early 90s, I guess it would be when these messages were going around. And so this Chuck Hayes figure, because we found... Alexander Gutterman, Mr. X. And I was like, there's no way we could find someone else that strange, you know, here in Pulaski County. And then lo and behold, we find Chuck Hayes, right? And (laughs) so like fucking Chuck Hayes. And and the only reason I found him was that somebody sent me a message. They joined uh, Facebook just to send me a message that said, have you looked at Chuck Hayes? And it attached an article about this guy from Pulaski County from here, you know, was caught in the largest seizure of uncut gemstones being smuggled into America, right? And I'm like, what the fuck? And sure enough, this guy was in Brazil and he looks like another Bond villain, right? And he's supposedly this junk dealer in Somerset and find out that there are thousands of articles about this guy online because he supposedly was a CIA agent that was tied to the Promise software that the whole story that Danny Casolaro you know, of the octopus was chasing down that got him killed. It turns out the information about promise was coming from Chuck Hayes here in Pulaski County that there, when he died, when they found Danny Castlero dead in that hotel, you know, of suicide, which he was probably murdered, you know, by the government or by somebody. um, When they checked his phone, his phone records, he had hundreds of calls to Pulaski County. To Chuck Hayes, right? And Chuck Hayes was called to testify, you know, because everybody's like, this guy's not a CIA agent. He's a country bumpkin, right? And then he gets called to testify in the Innslaw case about the PROMA software, and they enact the National Security Act, right? And so this guy supposedly built a fucking Cray supercomputer that controls the, the, the SATCOM system in the U.S. That he built that computer here in Pulaski County and built it in the back of a fucking semi that they were driving around Pulaski County and Kentucky to keep it on the move. And that he was the head of a group called the fifth column. And it was these XCA CIA hackers. And they were using this promise software to take down corrupt politicians. And there are tons of articles about this shit, right? And, and it ties into Danny Castellero and the whole Octopus case, and I was like, "This is fucking completely nuts, right?" And the story of the cray supercomputer in the back of the of the semi ends up in a fucking X Files episode, right? And and so like because at the time that, that you know the the creators of the X Files were were going through the inner the conspiracy web and and going through these Usenet groups. Chuck Hayes was fucking all over it. He was a fucking star. Right. And it's just, it's like, what the fuck was that? And then we receive these documents from a guy and that the guy wants us to data mine it. Darian and I, my research partner, uh, and he's a co-producer on the show. And we do a lot of projects with data mining too, and contract out for development. And so, Darian had developed this data mining software. So the, cause when I did the FOIA request for Alexander Guterma, I actually got 1600 pages of documents from the FBI, which I was like, what the fuck? I can't believe they responded my FOIA, FOIA request. And so we ended up by the end of the first season with just this massive amount of information. And so Darian built a data mining system called Nautilus to help us digest all of this. Right. And we were talking about it, talking about interviews and all these things. And so, we get these weird documents, which again, this is going to sound completely fucking stupid, but it's true. It's true, right? I mean, Steven Snyder knows this. Like a lot of people have seen the documents, right? And they involve transactions of gold from the Philippines through the U.S. into and it's converted in Europe into the Middle East into oil, right? And it gold from the Marcos family right? Ferdinand and um, Emily Marcos. But it's the Yamashita's gold, the golden lily gold from World War Two. Right, right. Right. And so the documents, it's hundreds and hundreds of bank accounts, swift transfers, like emails, and it traces this whole thing, right? And somebody wanted us to data mine that. And When we opened those documents up, that was probably the scaredest I've been when we were researching this because I felt like I had, that we were looking at something that we shouldn't, right? Because it's fun to like postulate about hyperstitions and, you know, old ones and portals and alien black cats. But then like seeing this shit, I was like, I don't know if we're, because it had whole reproductions of like gold certificates, lots of stuff that I was like you know, the transaction records, I felt like we shouldn't have this. This is dangerous to have. Right. You know, we talked to Rick Spence about it and, and we were like, well, we'll send it to you and you see. It. And he was like, do not fucking send me those documents, you know? <laughs> and, and, and he thought wow. his opinion was that it was an intelligence operation. Right. And I was like, but why? Cause he's just said something in the documents is something that someone wants to get out, but they don't want it tied back to them. They think you're going to release the documents. Right? And the documents had, the weirdest thing was that a bunch of the, the actual documents themselves were about what we were researching. Like Cleve Baxter, the guy that, you know, s- created the way to speak to plants with the lie yes, detectors.., right? Yes, yes. there's this whole th- that he's in there. Um, Mitch McConnell, the senator from Kentucky, right? But it's like the documents came from Escondido, California, right? Escondido, hidden. Right. And so they come to us in Kentucky, and there's documents about Mitch McConnell, you know, memos from his office, supposedly, and like emails, presidential emails, like some really weird shit. Right. But a lot of documents that directly reference what we were researching at that time. They even mentioned Steven Snyder. Like, Steven Snyder is in the fucking documents. Right. And I was like, this is super strange. Well, at the time that Rick Spence mentioned that, well, you know, this could be an intelligence operation. I was like, why would anyone, what we don't, we're not doing anything. We're like chasing after fucking monsters and like weird cults, you know, that here in town, there's no reason, you know, no one would be watching us for anything. You know, we haven't uncovered anything that earth shattering. I thought, you know, and this was before we found the Chuck Hayes stuff. But then when we found Chuck Hayes and the promise software And the fact that he had the promise software, I mean, the government sued him over this, right? They like sued him, took him to court and wiped a bunch of computers because he had bought. This is a crazy story, right? But he did have this promise software here in this county. So after we found that out, Darian was like, what if when we were talking about this data mining software that we were using to sort through all the documents we had, what if they thought we had the promise software. Like what if they, because at the time we didn't know Chuck Hayes, but they may, they didn't know that. So what if they thought we had found Chuck Hayes, who was still, who was still alive up until, you know, while we were working on this, they might've thought we found him and that he gave us a copy of the promise software. And so that's why someone gave us some documents to data mine with, because the software focuses on financial transactions. Right. And so, I was like, what if they did? What that, you know, what if they thought that's what we had and if we data mined it, they'd be able to see us use, you know what I mean, it would trigger the use of the software. Oh, so wow. that that's the the that's mainly the only time that I was like, what if what if we are sticking our nose in something, you know, because I love telling stories and and I love telling the Penny Royal story and digging into this mystery, right? But still it's just you know, a passion project and a hobby, you know, I'm not trying to like uncover government corruption or expose some, something. you know what I mean? And so th- to that degree, I was like, I don't know about this, man. You know, like, is this a mistake? Is it a mistake to even fuck around with this stuff? Yeah. Um, uh, understandably. So I would be feeling the same
1: way if I was <laughs> in that position. And it is, you, know, you mentioned the resources in the past in newspapers, It is crazy to see how that's shifted, and now journalism is not at all what it used to be. Where they used to have all these wild stories, now they're giving us a very clean, scrubbed narrative in the mainstream platforms. And if anybody dares go into these forbidden realms, they get banned, censored, and maybe even in extreme cases dealt with you know, and, and wow. Yeah. I, I don't blame you for feeling that way. And I don't blame Richard Spence for saying, Hey, don't send that to me, but I don't know. Curiosity killed this cat. Cause I wouldn't hesitate if you offered to send him to me, not asking, but if you offered, I would, I would not stop you. But yeah, I definitely, wow. I know there are so many different angles. We can go down here. I don't want to keep you for too much longer cause I know it's getting late for both of us, but For folks who haven't listened to season one, I totally recommend stopping what you're doing, going and checking it out. But for season two, can you give us uh, a little bit of a breakdown? Because I've only waded into episode one. Uh, What can I expect from episode two and beyond? Oh, man. Exactly what I just
0: told you about. Well, absolutely. (laughs) Stupid (laughs) question on my part. <laughs> well you know, this season is a lot of this stuff was just stuff we uncovered in during the course of the first season, but it was just too much to fit into one season, you know, right. and and you know, the we had the documents before the end of the first season, but I didn't know how to where that went, you know. And then finding the Chuck Hayes stuff. So, you know, really the the second season is, you know, I like I said, I used the motif of the occult history of the U.S. transportation system, but that really is just a vehicle to carry us through the story of how Downard ties into Pulaski County and Kentucky. You know, all of our all of our research on you know like randomness cryptological devices just just a lot of the stuff that we found in the course of researching this and understanding this all the stuff that we've talked about about hyperstition right and uh, can you give us examples of maybe sorry cryptological devices Uh,
1: maybe maybe we've touched on them so far but can you expand on that a little bit yeah man
0: so so while we were doing this research we have a, a patreon group called the liminal lodge and and so we do a lot of, you know, Darian and I are developing a lot of the software and we started testing out some of our theories about using randomness generators Mm. and to see if whenever something synchronous or something paranormal happened, that it caused a decrease in the Shannon entropy in the immediate area. Right. And this is all premised on these studies, I think it was in the 90s or the early 2000s. They, they put these random number generators all around the world. Oh, this was in the 90s. Yeah, so they put these random number generators all around the world, and they're called eggs. And there are lots of different countries and, and places, different universities, and they all tie into a central system, and they track the randomness, the general randomness on the planet, right? And so they noticed that right before 9-11 happened, the like within t- 24 hours prior to 9/11, the global randomness dropped, right? Which which meant that things were less random; they were more synchronous, right? And and if we had the internet we have now, then we might have been able to track people talking about all of, all these people around the world experiencing a spike in syn- synchronicities in their lives. I don't know. This is something I I've theorized about, right? Wow! And so we built Darian built this randomness generator thing that we use, and so when we we'll have people do channelings or you know just what is some psi phenomena, just different stuff like that, right? And what we do is we we and you know, we'll have people take it on ghost hunts, you know, and the idea is if something. Paranormal happens or if something high strangeness occurs, right, it'll cause this decrease in randomness. And so that sent me down this path of looking at cryptography and it was really looking at randomness and divination. Right. And because I, I think it's counterintuitive, people don't think of divination as needing randomness. Right. Because divination is about not finding random things, finding things that are, you know, that are going to happen right? Mm. That are predictable. You know, you're predicting it through the divination. Usually you have a hopes invested in those things (laughs) too. (laughs) But it turns out that, you know, the I Ching, IFA divination, which is a big part of the second season at the end. And, but mainly IFA and the I Ching, but uh, Tarot too, a little bit, but the I Ching and IFA need true randomness in order to work, right? You literally... it has to be, the, it only emerges from true randomness. And, and so IFA, it turns out, is the basis, and this is a 10,000-year-old Yoruban folklore system, okay? It's a divination system, a folk divination system, a folk technology. And it is the basis of binary code. And Leibniz said that he got it from the I Ching, but it turns out he had Yoruban slaves, and they taught him this because the I Ching is still hexagrams, right? But the EFA is pure zeros and ones. And it's divided into 16-bit, or 16-bit, 32-bit, and 256-bit combinations, e 256-bit encryption. So our modern encryption system, right, for the internet and all these handshakes and us being able to talk are based on a 10,000-year-old folk technology okay that, that's the basis of so every time we know we do these digital handshakes we're we're enacting this this divination system so i started wow. to wonder if there were other devices like this right and you find things like the zaria which was an ancient islamic it's i'm calling it a device but it was a table of symbols right and it's not ma- it's not that it's magical it's actually a table of like it uses mathematics it uses randomness but the zaria it, it takes thought and intention and then quantifies them through a series of of me- of mental machinations, right but it is considered one of the w- first computers and then a guy named Ramon Lowell created what were called Llullian circles, and they're these cryptographic devices, and they're a series of symbols around a series of, of pieces of like paper, like spinners, and they were in books, and you could like turn them, and as you turn them, they would reveal answers to you, right? But it's con- but he is considered the father of computer programming. Right, because he invented these these devices. And so it takes it even further to Downert and him finding the the Dayton is part of the carnivals of life and death. And it's this device that Freemasons used to decode reality. And it looks like a one of the Enigma machines, but really what it's trying to do are are, are, are computations of randomness and reality and so, And so, so, anyway, I got into this whole research about these crypto cryptographic devices and how they are sort of embedded in this story and this this idea of of. Um, Unraveling reality and and some of these groups that might have been doing it. I know it sounds somewhat divested from, oh, no, no. World, but it is part of the story. And it is in I did a I did a uh, presentation on this at the Strange Realities Conference in Nashville this past October about the history of cryptographics Decode basically it's these devices that help us decode reality. Right. And there's a belief that secret societies have been using them for a long time. But see they they're ubiquitous now because of Cryptocurrency, you know, like we're literally running all around us. people are running these algorithms that are mining, right, blocks of information, they're decrypting constantly. I mean, they're at this moment, there are hundreds of millions of devices running around the planet that are mining Bitcoin, but really, they're these like, they're, they're cryptographic devices. And if, if reality is information, they're they're mining that information, right? They're mining the randomness um, and the, the Shandon entropy. So anyway, that's, that's become a big part of the research that we're doing right now and exploring what devices we're building, but then also trying to test it out in the course of in, the, understanding this whole sort of mystery. Absolutely. And I don't think it strays away from the topic
1: at all because going back to someone who I'm very familiar with, Michael Wan's research, he talks about how the D-Wave computer was built there on the Susquehanna River. You talked about this Promise software, very crucial to this landscape uh, picture that we're painting here. So, wow, I'm fascinated. Is there any more information on the specifications on this device that the Freemasons use? And how, how long have they, they had this going back to, you know, Egyptian times? Or, or is it something maybe like uh, more recent? Well,
0: so, so Alina Freeland, do you know Alina Freeland that did, oh man, what's that book called? She writes a book about chemtrails. Okay. Uh, God, I, I can't remember. I'll, I'll send you the name when I, I can't remember what it is right now. It's the top of my head. But in that book, she also talks about the Dayton Witch. She edited Downard's biography, right? And it mentions there's a tag on the device that it was the property of Brunel University, right? And that's, it's the Brunel University cybernetics department, right? So it had this whole idea of hyperstition and, and everything comes into play, but it was supposedly found in 1931, but Brunel University didn't exist until 1966. Right? <sighs> and and so but you know downard in his carnivals of life and death says oh i'm a little mixed up on my dates of things right he even references elvis at one point it's supposed to everything's supposed to take place prior to 1935 and he talks about elvis you know so there's a there's a weirdness to it but but that device and devices like it were absolutely you know th- these things did exist and the you can trace the history of those things and and see there's a there's a huge connection between cryptography and magic. Like when you go back and you look at John D, Edward Kelly, these guys that were magicians that were laying the foundation for ceremonial magic and, you know, the Enochian keys, the Enochian keys, all of that, they figured that out through cryptological analysis. Their discovery of the Enochian keys, their attempt to decode that, produced modern cryptography, right? And you've got Tristemius and others, and they were all people trying to contact other intelligences, trying to decode parts of reality. And they were inventing these devices to help them do that. Right. And so just, you take it to the modern day, you know, look at the, the Enigma was the name of the German or the German cryptological devices. Right. But Here in the U.S., the name of the cryptological device program was magic, right? And so there's just a constant connection between magical systems, cryptography, and the decoding of reality, right? I mean, essentially, too, magic, people that perform magic and even ceremonial magic... It's an el there's an element of cybernetics there, right? Of of you imposing your will on something and it creating this sort of feedback loop, right? The more intention that you put into it, the more energy you feed into it. But really what you're feeding into it is observational energy, right? And and so anyway, yeah, I mean there's there's the date in which is a, a big fascination of mine right now and understanding what it was. And it ties into also a group called the Brotherhood of Saturn in Germany. They're responsible for the new age movement. And supposedly there was Saturnian worship going on at Mount Palomar at the Mount Palomar observatory. Right. And I found an old downer talks about it in the series rising tapes that they, they recorded of him in the 1970s, that there were these rituals going on. And I found a 1947 comic strip that shows a Saturnian ritual at Palomar, right? And this is 47, right? This is when, when you know, Kenneth Arnold had his sighting. And so in the comic book, it has this phrase, Om Om Rahalan, right? So I look that up and I find in a book about obscure groups in the burlesque society of Weimar, Germany, there's one section and it's an excerpt of a ceremonial ritual by the brotherhood of Saturn and it's Om Om Rahalon. And it turns out that that there's this connection between the brotherhood of Saturn, Mount Palomar, the observatory and an OTO temple that was built on Mount Palomar that Jack Parsons used. Right. And that all came from chasing all of this shit down, man, you know, and like chasing down the asphalt, this idea of, you know, roads and, you know, and, Escondido where these documents came from is near Palomar you know it's that same area you know I was talking to Alan Greenfield and he's like on the other side of the mountain there's a bunch of weird shit that went down you know back in the 50s and it's just and that's uh, also Mount Palomar is where fucking Adamski had his like Downard was there at the same time that Adamski was there. Right. Downard went there in 40, like 45 and 47. He was chasing his ex-wife across the country and ends up in fucking Palomar. And that's where Adamski was. That's where the contactee movement began. Our whole idea of what a fucking flying saucer looks like is from Adamski's drawing. Right. And so Adamski is there where this OTO temple is, where this group is you know, the Brotherhood of Saturn is operating and the, the guy that built the Palomar Observatory, Edward Hale, or I think his name's Edward Hale. He built it because a fucking elf came through his window and told him to build that fucking telescope. Right. And so it's like all of these weird. And then George Hunt Williamson shows up, at, you know, with the damski at Palomar. So it's like there are these weird intersections of all of these strange things in that area. Right. But. I got there and I started at the Penny Royal, you know what I mean? And it was like through this research, we ended up there and it's so fucking crazy, man, you know, and like looking at these cryptological magical devices and decoding reality. And it just, I don't know, man, it's been, it's just, it's such a weird, wild ride. So the second season is that journey and is really, you know, Penny Royal, the first season was very much focused on this place. And the second season really widens that narrative out and shows how this place is connected to so many other places and, and, and events in history, you know? Yeah, dude, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> it, it is so, so much.
1: And wow, you do a great job of painting the picture for us and explaining it all. And like I said, I, you know, for whatever reason, I, I think, I booked this after hearing an interview you did and I was like, you know what? I remember this podcast here I am. Let's do this. And I didn't even think to go back and, uh, and check out to see if anything new had come out and uh, until literally a couple hours ago. So uh, I'm super excited to listen to all that and hopefully have you back on again in some time. But dude, Nathan, this has been a blast. You have broken down concepts that are way above my head and I'm wading in these waters. You know, synchronicity has been something that we've talked a lot about on the show. And not only did you deliver some really masterful, not just advice, but speculation and sort of your own experience on synchronicity, which is something that's so personal, but you've weaved it into this amazing story and as you say when you try to tell a story this great you end up getting pulled into it so for folks who haven't listened please go check out the Penny Royal you can listen to it on the same podcast app that you're checking this out where else can folks go Uh, links and Channels where where can they go to support Penny royal Obviously, you have a Patreon, the Liminal Lodge, very cool. I'm gonna sign up for that. What to, what else can folks go and check? We've got the website
0: PennyroyalPodcast.com, and yeah, we we're on everything, Spotify and and uh, Apple Podcasts. So check us out there. And yeah, if you, if you you know this whole mystery sort of, sort of is played out in the Liminal Lodge, you know a lot of stuff that we found. Like I said, you know we wouldn't have found the Chuck Hayes stuff, right? And that was those were Lodge members. There were people. That were helping us in the research, so we're still uncovering stuff. If anybody wants to join the mystery, and you know, weekly we're talking about evidence and threads we're chasing down with our Patreon group, we definitely would appreciate the support. And uh, yeah, man, dude, thank you so much again, too, for having me on the show and and talking to me about this. Let me tell you this, all these crazy things, but I um, love it. No, it's the pleasure is all mine.
1: And if there's anything I can do moving forward, whether it's helping you get in touch with certain guests, I would love to put you in touch with Michael Wan if you haven't spoken to him already. And, you know, whatever I can do. Let me know. I just signed up for the Patreon, so I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to dig through this. And like I said, you'll be hearing from me in the future because I'd love to have you back
0: on. Oh, I would love to come
1: back on, man. So, absolutely. Right well, thank you so much, folks, for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Alright, thank you so much for being here, listening in on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. This episode featured Nathan Isaac, host and creator of the Penny Royal podcast. And if you haven't, you have not checked them out yet, be sure to check them out. I believe there are three episodes still unreleased in the second season. For some reason, I thought there was only eight, uh, but... Yeah, very good stuff. Very inspiring to hear what Nathan and his team has put together. Michael, Juan, and I recently discussed the podcast Penny Royal on our podcast, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. You can find that on the Susquehanna Alchemy feed. Sorry, folks, if that's complicated, but we talked about it. Very, very similar sentiment made by Michael Juan. He Resonates with the Penny Royal And yeah, it's an inspiration Who knows, maybe we'll come out with something Similar For the Susquehanna River Leave that up to Mike But Long story short We have so much going on here As things are getting warmer And Nathan's research On the Penny Royal Has inspired me To look further Into ...what my girlfriend and I have been calling the Connecticut mystery. Whatever it is that is here that's waiting for us to find. One of the biggest sort of conspiracy stories that showed me what synchronicity was... ...was the Toynbee tile story. Because as I was walking across the street one day... ...I just happened to step on one of these Toynbee tiles... It literally jumped right out at me and ever since, I've been chasing that dragon, chasing that feeling, exploring things in the real, uncovering things like a detective, uncovering these truths that are out there waiting, hiding. Anyways, it's a month of merch madness. Hook us up, help us out, we could use your support We're moving out of... Where we're currently living into an apartment and I'm excited I'm gonna be out of this basement no more furnace background noise that'll have to edit out it's gonna be fantastic but we can't do it without your support so sign up on patreon follow us on Rockfin and of course this month if you use the promo code MFTIC88, you can get free shipping on any one of the awesome t shirts, sweatshirts that we have for sale. We even have mugs and stickers too. But go on our website, check out the link to the merch. The link is in the description for this episode. You can also find the link on the Telegram. Sign up on our Telegram and join in the community of like minds. Bunch of people in there. Shout out to Jake from uh, loco listens showing us a lot of love on instagram and telegram shouting out the show very awesome way to support the show i appreciate everything you're doing jake it really means a lot and if you have some time some talent or some treasure that you can contribute to this show don't hesitate you're already helping us out contributing your time by listening to the show so awesome thank you for doing that if you have some talent like jake does that you can contribute to the show whether you're an artist a musician a promoter whatever it is that you are best at maybe you're creative and you're doing something that i can't even think of off the top of my head maybe you have a product that you would like to sponsor the show with maybe you're doing something unique that we can talk about on the show do not hesitate. My email is on my website, crazy.com. Or you could just hear me say it right now, mfticpodcast at gmail.com. That's the best way to get in touch with me. And of course, your treasure. You can donate with a one time donation. We have a PayPal, we have Venmo, we have Cash App, we take Bitcoin, any of it. Just hit me up, go to the website. You got all the links to all the ways you can support with a one-time donation, or you do a one-time donation by buying merch. It's pretty much the same thing. Uh, I take that money, and it goes to things that go into the show. I mean, there's a lot of different expenses that I have throughout the month. A big portion of that is towards the podcast, so I really can't bring you this caliber uh, podcast quality that it is that I'm very proud of and that I'm constantly striving to improve unless I'm supported by you the lovely listeners so thank you so much for hearing me out and hearing the this, this spiel I know all of you kind folks that do listen to the show when you can I know you will and uh, and yeah don't hesitate because I know that I probably wouldn't even be here speaking this to you guys if I hesitated. You know, Back way back when, when I was just a listener in your shoes. And I went and I said, you know what, I'm going to support Sam Tripoli. I'm going to support those conspiracy guys. I'm going to support the higher side chats. I'm going to support Ray America Show. And pretty soon I was spending $25 a month on podcasts. You know, spending $25, $30 a month on podcasts, working part-time hours. I could not afford that, but you know what? I'm glad I did because it karmically brought me to this point here. And, uh, yeah, you know, as this show develops, you'll learn more about me. Uh, little birdie told me that I should be more forthcoming with who I am, uh, be more vulnerable and share more about myself. So I definitely plan on doing that. We have some big, big guests coming up, so I hope that it'll be more about them, less about me in the next few weeks or so, but we had Ryan Bledsoe back on the show, Tony Merkel back on the show, um, the Mad Hatter, Jeff Hunt joins us on the show for the first time, my buddy Alex comes back on the show, Hollow Sky Podcast with them Really cool guys over there at Hollow Sky Podcast Shout out to them And that's about it folks Plug the merch, plug the Patreon You guys get it You want to support the show Just check out the episode description I really appreciate when you do that Oh and uh, reviews rate, rate and review the show If you review the show We will not only read your review But we will thank you for your kind review Let's see, have I missed any any new reviews? Are we up to date on the reviews? We are up to date on the reviews. Right on. And you know what? We have some new patrons that we need to give a shout out to. That's what we need to do. We're going to save that for Wednesday's episode. Thank you so much, folks, for being here. Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Shout out to our three new patrons. Donna, jake loco and leo cadia very cool name there thank you for being here folks i love you all so much thank you for supporting the show and have a great moment wherever you are in the now